Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Hello, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and it's great to be back today to welcome Tim Cockrell here to the table. Tim recently has shared a message from God's Word based in Matthew chapter 23, and that sermon will be the focus of our conversation here in the coming moments. Tim, here we are on a about every two-week, uh, every other week routine and rhythm. It's, uh, I always look forward to getting together with you. It's just a pleasure to talk through the Scripture with you. Likewise. It's always great to be able to unpack passages, especially one that has as much richness as this one. And there is a lot of richness. You and I were talking just a little bit about some of the ways, that, some of the applications that are just so practical, especially on some current events, and things that you and I deal with every day with mm-hmm. children and with just uh, dealing with people. So let's start here. You shared a definition earlier in your sermon of the term or the word hypocrisy. And you said that hypocrisy is, and I'm quoting here, we deceive ourselves by thinking that right answers, or I might even add right living, you may have mentioned that Mm -hmm. too, that right answers are more important than a right heart. Now, does this mean that if I don't have the right heart attitude, I shouldn't do the right thing, whether it's treating someone well or perhaps just even a basic like reading my, my Bible? Mm-hmm. I, I'm glad you asked that question because I've talked to a number of people that say, you know, I, I don't feel like reading my Bible. Or I don't feel like, you know, doing these things and I don't want to be a hypocrite. Therefore, I'm not going to do them. And I I'm think, absolved. Exactly. <laughs> but I think we have to differentiate between a, a right heart and right feelings. And so what Jesus is saying here is that we have to have a right heart or a right motive for doing things. And that's where it has to start. So if I'm doing something with bitterness or pride or deceit, even the right external behavior can still be sin. You know, I think about in Malachi chapter one, as God is condemning the the priests and the leaders there in the Old Testament, he's condemning them because they're going through the motions of offering the sacrifices, but for all the wrong reasons. And he actually says, I wish somebody would shut the gates of the temple. Now, that's not to say that offering sacrifices was somehow wrong, but that by doing it the way that they were doing it, it was making it wrong. And so what Jesus is saying is we have to start by having the right heart. And so if I'm struggling with pride or selfishness or any of those things, I have to start by confessing that. And and Jesus says this later on in in chapter 23. He says, you've got to clean the inside of the vessel first so that then the behaviors that are outward are the right behaviors. Now, the contrast here is that's different than just feeling the right feelings. Hmm. Because there's plenty of times where I'm not going to feel like reading my Bible or showing grace to my spouse, or being patient with my children, or forgiving the person that hurt me. But love for God and others is not a feeling. It's a choice. And as we make that choice, then the feelings are to follow. And I think that's a danger that sometimes we can make as Christians, is we imagine that feelings are the engine of the train, when in reality they're the caboose. And so spiritual disciplines, for instance, like Bible study, are to train our heart to desire the right things and to to live in the way that we're called to. And so even if we don't feel those things, because we love God, we discipline ourselves to do them. And so I like this analogy. You know, when our children are very young, you know, two years old, let's just say, and someone gives them something, we say, what do you say? And they learn to say, thank you. 
Now, they're not saying thank you at that moment because they're just so overflowing with <laughs> gratitude that they just have to express it. But those kisses and hugs feel so good. It's true. <laughs> but, but we're teaching them to say thank you as a prompter to say this is a moment where you should feel gratitude where you should express gratitude. In the same way when they, they hit someone and we say, you need to say you're sorry, they're not saying they're sorry in that moment because they're just so overwhelmed with their sin, but you're teaching them this is a moment where you should feel sorry for your sin. And so the key is to start with the heart rather than waiting for the feelings to come. And as we do that, as we honor God with our choices, I believe he's going to discipline and teach us to then live out the right heart in the right ways. Okay, so this takes me back 37 years ago. I was thinking <laughs> as you're saying this, when was this? 37 years ago, it was Christmas of 1985. I was uh, with a bunch of other people from universities all across the country in Chicago. And I remember Nay Bailey was her name. Mm. And she was sharing a uh, just her testimony. And she was it was she entitled it, Faith is not a feeling. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it reminds me, too, of uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Now, faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I hope, it, could it be, the contextually here, could it be that faith is a substance of things hoped for? I hope for the right heart. So I'm going to do the right thing in faith mm -hmm. that God is developing me. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think about even the story of, of the man who, who comes to Jesus asking for a miracle, and he says, Jesus says, anything is possible if you believe. And the man says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And I, I think that's just such a real, honest approach to Jesus that says, I desire to serve you from the right heart, but I know my heart's deceitful. I desire to extend forgiveness, but I know there's this temptation to harbor bitterness. And as we do that, even just acknowledging that, I believe is a part of the process of uprooting that sin in our hearts and displacing it by the power of God's grace. Well, let's talk about children. You <laughs> mentioned this, and, and I really appreciated you bringing this up because this is something that I know my wife Sandy and I have talked about. I can remember the messages or a series of messages that we went through as a church. I don't know, it's been seven, eight, ten years ago maybe, mm -hmm. in Ephesians where we were, we were talking about a number of things, and it really came alive to us. Maybe I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that. But, but specifically, <clears throat> you caution parents about the danger of teaching our children that doing the right things is, is paramount. Can you talk about some of those problems that parents and, <clears throat> here we go, grandparents here, <laughs> uh, and, and even whole churches can promote by this false understanding of right living? Yeah, it's so challenging because there's complexity here, right? You know, we want our children to do the right things, but we want them to do them for the right reasons. And so I think we have to differentiate between parenting for behavior management and parenting for heart change. One starts with the external and one starts with the internal. Now, they're going to look similar potentially, but they're very different in terms of what their end goals ultimately are. So behavior modification is content if our children just simply stop doing the wrong things and start doing the right things. And sometimes that's easier to feel like we can just kind of legislate their morality, if you will. But it, it focuses exclusively just on the do's and don'ts without really giving attention to, to the heart motive, to the why. And if we're not careful, what we can do is teach our children to be really effective image managers. And what we're doing in those moments is teaching them to sin in more respectable ways. 
And that's where I think Jesus's words here, that if we do this, we are making our children twice as much a child of hell as we ourselves are, because all we're doing is teaching them a spiritual system that conceals the danger and deceit of their own heart. In contrast, if we allow the rules and their disobedience uh, to them to reveal their sinful hearts, that gives us now an opportunity to drill into what were you wanting in that moment? Mm -hmm. What was it that your heart was so consumed by that you were willing to hit or hurt or lie? And in those moments, what we're doing is unearthing whole richness of spiritual sin, first of all, but also of the riches of God's grace that covers that sin. And, and so the God's law, I believe, is designed to real, reveal our inability. And so if we use that in our children's lives, not to say you need to shape up and work harder and do more, but to say, look how much you need Jesus. And by the way, as parents, we need to make sure we're doing that as well. That might mean I come back to them and apologize for being impatient with their sinfulness. But I think the, the long-term goal is that our children be disciples of Jesus. And if we allow those rules, which are important, and those consequences, which are also important, to train them to look to him, then I think there's there's a much deeper transformation that takes place. And I'm guessing your children are similar to what my children were maybe 10, 15 years ago, and that is they don't need us to explicitly teach them how to hide their true nature. Mm -hmm. uh, they get enough implicit instruction from watching us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. They, they learn so much by example. And let's be honest, we all struggle with that. We want to be admired or respected or thought well of. And so there's this temptation to only show people the best parts. We, we do this even when we come to church, you know? We might be fighting with our wife or, you know, yelling at our kids driving into the parking lot, but we walk into the church Hello. and it's all smiles and we're doing great and everything's wonderful. I, I even, I visited one of our small groups last night and uh, they were supposed to start at 7 and I didn't get there until 7.10 and I said, I'm we sorry. We won't ask why, Tim. I'm yeah. sorry that I'm late, but I had a parenting opportunity. And, <laughs> and there are just those, the reality that we have to say of that we're all in process and we're all dependent on God's grace. Well, you referenced Micah chapter 6, verse 8 in this regard later in your sermon. And, and by the way, here's another one of those major concepts packaged in a real small, tight space. Mm -hmm. But boy, it just blows up to all kinds of truth. It says that God's requirement of his children is that we do justly, we love mercy, we walk humbly with our God. Perhaps this would be a good time to talk again about the power of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life and what's really gone on with that dynamic, him living in us. Absolutely. Because that's the difference here, isn't it? Where if we imagine that what God expects of us is dependent on us just working harder and pulling ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps, it's a treadmill of exhaustion that doesn't get us anywhere, but just leaves us just absolutely spent. Mm. But if we imagine and understand that the spiritual life is a process of surrender and dependence and abiding, then we understand that it's the Holy Spirit that produces in us what we are unable to produce in ourselves. And so as we love God and as we know his character, then that is what begins to be formed in us. So that even as Micah 6, 8 says, to Love, to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly, we have to know God rightly in order to understand what justice really is. We have to experience his mercy personally 
in order to be effectively extending that mercy to others. And I think we see this even in some of the social justice movements that we see going on in our country that while well-intentioned, have twisted what justice really is, have softened what mercy really is to, to just a general tolerance as opposed to, to the picture of biblical grace that we really see. And so as we depend on the Holy Spirit, he produces the fruit that only he can. And so as we struggle, if we're failing, it may be because we're depending on our own strength rather than his. We all have our horses. We've talked about that. And one of my horses that I ride regularly is just reminding myself and anybody who will listen, the need to be filled with the Spirit. Absolutely. Ephesians 5.18. And, and that is in the context, you know, while we're at it, let's go a little further in Ephesians mm-hmm. if we could. I know that as I've developed in my personal relationship with Christ, it's really helped me to understand it's helped me in my growth, that is, to understand the context in which I'm living. Uh, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm called to be a soldier mm-hmm. in the spiritual warfare that's going on all around us. We read a little bit about this in Ephesians 6, right, following that uh, area where God, or Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. That's mm-hmm. a continuous filling. We need to continually ask that. Can you talk a little bit about that context of that major warfare we're in? Yeah, we're right now we're seeing the, the Russian armies invading Ukraine, as right. we talked to now, now here in 2022. And it really paints a vivid picture for us. It does. And I think one of the key points there in Ephesians chapter 6 is to recognize that the war starts in our own heart. You know, it's easy to see, you know, that there's temptation or there's frustration or, or all these circumstances. But James chapter 4 is very clear. What causes conflicts and quarrels among you, it's the desires in your heart that you're wanting something that you're not getting. And I think that's one of the things Jesus is trying to express to the religious leaders is you're wanting to be admired and respected, but you're finding your identity in the approval and applause of people rather than in Christ. You're wanting to have godly behavior, but you're doing that in a superficial rather than personal way. And so I think as we think about spiritual warfare, it has to start with our own heart to acknowledge there's there's deceitful things in my heart that I don't want to confess. Then if we expand that out to our relationships, you know, whether it's marriage or parenting or church relationships, I think we have to recognize that the other person is not the enemy. You know, that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against demonic forces that are here. And Satan's tactics are so deceitful. It can be so easy to just write somebody off or begin gossiping about them. But Satan is using pride and selfishness in those moments to divide us, where what we really need is to be humble and united with others. And so then if we expand it out even further into kind of the geopolitical realm, I think we have to recognize, even as we talked about government a couple weeks ago, our hope isn't in NATO or the American government or military strength. Our hope is in the power of the gospel to transform our hearts and those around us. And so we have to remember, even as we see these events unfolding, that as followers of Christ, we find our identity in him, we find our hope in him, but that ought to give us this wartime mentality that says, hey, as I spend my money, as I invest my time, as I pray for things, I need to pray with God's priorities in view, not just my own personal concerns. And so as we think about the the humility Jesus is calling us to, 
I think that compels us then to run to him to say, we are desperate for you to fight our battles for us because these are beyond our capability. It really goes back to what we were talking about. It sounds like what you're saying, going back to the very beginning of our time together today, really working on that personal discipline, Mm -hmm. being ready for when those battles do come up and they crop up, whether it's a battle in the home, battle wherever you might be, or just a battle in your own mind, that we need to be ready for that. And the one way we can do that is continuing to develop discipline, spiritual discipline, relying solely on God and not not putting ourselves first, but putting God and then others first. Yes, absolutely. Well, Tim, these truths seem to me to be as applicable applicable to ones who have just recently begun following Jesus as they are to ones who have followed him for, say, you know, 40, 50 years. But Jesus here seems to be addressing the sins of longtime spiritual leaders. These are the, this is the upper crust and the spiritual makeup of Israel, so to speak. Suppose one today is listening and they're recognizing his or her own sin in what they read Jesus saying here in his seven woes of Mm -hmm. chapter 23. How would you, they come to Tim Cockrell and they say, Tim, help me, counsel me, help me to respond appropriately to the truth that Jesus is teaching here. Mm. This is really hitting me hard. What should I do? Well, the first thing, as counterintuitive as it sounds, is to to give thanks and be excited because that represents the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which is a mark of a genuine believer. And, and I think that's the, the scariest thing about this whole passage is these were the people that thought they were rightly related to God. But every time there was statements that should have brought conviction, it brought hardness of heart instead. And so even as hard as it is to be convicted by God, that should make us thankful that it's a mark of of spiritual discipline uh, that God does for his own children. But I think the obvious first step is confessing that sin to God. And the danger I think we all run is we feel that moment of conviction and we want to offer a quick confession. You know, oh God, I'm sorry. Now let's move on. It's over. (laughs) I've, I've learned my lesson. Let's get out of the classroom. What I'd really encourage any of us to do is to, to journal through our thoughts Begin to to think through what is it that God's convicting me of and write it down because we have such short memories. We can think, okay, I'm doing fine, I'm, I'm progressing, and many times we, we short-circuit the process that God desires to do there. So start by confessing God and, and digging down into how deep do the roots of these sins go. Secondly, I think it's important to confess that sin to others. Because sometimes we can deceive ourselves to say, well, I've now confessed this secret sin to God. Nobody else really needs to know. And I think James chapter 5 teaches us that confession to one another is a part of our corporate community that helps guard us against sin and restores us from sin. I was just talking to somebody about how as we walk through the Christian life, the more we build up this reputation for godliness, the more we feel like we have to lose if we're really genuinely transparent. And, and I think Satan uses that to, to make us fearful. But if we confess that sin, many times we realize, one, others struggle in similar ways, and two, there is grace in community just as there is grace that God extends us in forgiveness. And then I think the third thing I would suggest is to begin to recalibrate in whatever area that is to begin to shift away from what some of those sinful motives might be. So I think about in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, you know, these Pharisees are praying on the street corners for everybody to see. He doesn't say stop praying. He says they ought to go in the closet. 
So that way it isn't a temptation. They're praying just so that others would see it. Great. Well, I love how Matthew ends the scene. And I, along with you, I noticed you, you used a little license. It doesn't say that Jesus cried or Jesus wept. Jesus' uh, tears fall, I think, was the point that you made. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I agree with that license that you took here. I, I can't imagine Jesus sharing the words of verse 37 without tears in his eyes. And this is the same guy, Jesus, who in chapter 21, verse 12, is overturning the money changers' uh, mm-hmm. tables. He's, you know, we talked, is he angry or not? Well, he's certainly exercised shall mm-hmm. we say. But how should this portrayal of Jesus there in the last part of this chapter, verses 37 through 40, challenge the child of God? Yeah. So in Luke chapter 19, the parallel passage mm-hmm. here, it literally does say that he is weeping over Jerusalem as he stands there on the Mount of Olives. And I think we just see such a picture of his heart of love. And I think the reason why it's so helpful is because it's paired right along with these statements of judgment. And I, as New Testament Christians, I feel like we can run the danger of imagining the Old Testament God to be the God who's full of wrath and kind of constantly angry and, and law-giving. And now the New Testament God is, is full of love and gentleness and mercy. And I think that's unbiblical. We see plenty of expressions of God's grace and mercy in the Old Testament. And we see clear expressions of his wrath and anger in the New Testament. And so as we think about this, we understand that Jesus is pronouncing judgment, but with deep compassion, because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't take any delight in the death of the wicked. And so he longs for them to find shelter, because that's what he himself is doing, is to take the wrath of God for them, for us. But he says that statement, but you are not willing. And I think it convicts us and challenges us that we, first of all, need to make sure we ourselves have availed ourselves of that grace. Because the Pharisees would have been the first to say, nope, we're, we're God's chosen. We're the ones who are rightly related to him. No matter what. Exactly. But secondly, I think it ought to give us a gospel urgency. That just as Jesus was literally weeping for the people that were about to crucify him, as we look around at our world, are we more concerned by how the events are happening are going to affect our economy or or the world state and not as concerned about the state of people's souls. And so I love the the mission's emphasis that grace has, and I just would encourage and challenge us to continue to think about that, not just for the missionaries we send out, but for missionaries we're called to be right here in our community because every day we interact with people that are on their way to a Christless eternity apart from the message of the gospel. A necessary part of the war. Absolutely. separated from God. Tim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate you being back, and uh, thanks so much for your preparation. You you do a great job, and we're really, really appreciative of what the the benefits and the fruits that we're enjoying from that. My pleasure. Tim Cockrell has been my guest on this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. We've been discussing his recent sermon from Matthew chapter 23, and you can access that message as well as other Grace Baptist Church sermons and podcast episodes on your favorite podcast app or by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking podcast on the media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. Plan to join us next week. We'll be continuing our discussion of God's Word in Matthew chapter 24. And until then, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning in to this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. 
Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.